You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast featuring some of Indiana's most fascinating men and women whose impact has shaped our state, our communities, and us. Join us as we discuss their imprint on our history. Leaders and Legends is brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated, your local veteran business enterprise specializing in public relations, media relations, public outreach, crisis communications, and digital photography. My name is Robert Bain, Principal of Veteran Strategies, former Deputy Chief of Staff to Mayor Greg Ballard, and Communications Director for the Indiana Republican Party. I'm honored to be your host for our discussion. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, the Crown Plaza Hotel and Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the law firm of Bose, McKinney, and Evans, and the Bose Public Affairs Group, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Thank you for joining us on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest today is basketball wizard and certainly a Hoosier legend, Donnie Walsh. We thank you so much for your time, Donnie. We are thrilled to have you on. Well, it's good to be with you, and I'm looking forward to the uh, to the time we spend together. Well, the first person I need to thank is the wonderful Shannon Walsh, your daughter, who I uh, pinged on mercilessly until she got you to agree to come on. Uh, everyone who knows her knows how wonderful she is, and, and certainly it's a, always a treat to see her at the Pacers game. I think she may be the team's number one fan. Well, she's there every game. I know that. And she's, uh, she used to get on the referees, but I told her, you know, it's fun to know who you are. So, you know, they're going to start looking at me now. So you got to be a little more discreet in what you're saying to them. <laughs> now, you know, I have my family's from the East Coast. My dad's family was born in New Jersey. And my dad uh, moved here after the Marine Corps in the early 60s. And I never really noticed that he had an east coast accent but forgive me uh, mr walsh i recognize your accent well to be honest with you um i went from new york when i was just 17 and went to university of north carolina and when i went there i went with larry brown uh, he came the following year but i went down there with a yankee accent <laughs> and i left there with a yankee accent Larry Brown came down there with a Yankee accent, and within two weeks he had a Southern accent. Was that to try to get girls, or do you think it was genuine? Well, I thought it was just Larry. He just acclimated immediately, whereas, you know, to me, I hung on to it and never quite got rid of it. You, you and Larry and Coach Brown knew each other in New York City, or you met at North Carolina? We knew each other in New York City because we played against each other when I was a senior in high school. We we didn't come from the same parts of New York, so it wasn't during the high school season. But after the high school season, there were a couple of teams that were developed, and then we'd enter tournaments. He was on one team, and I was on the other. and So we played against each other and got to know each other that way. And did you – do you – think that you influenced his decision to go to North Carolina? 
No, I don't think so. Uh, he basically, we were in the same high school class, but he ended up going to prep school. So he was one year behind me. Um, but, you know, I think at that time, particularly up in New York, if you got an opportunity to go to North Carolina, you just went. That's where a lot of us wanted to go. And so he was just like me. He Once he got the offer, he went there. In New York basketball in the 50s, early 60s, well, it's always been terrific, but that was a uh, particularly strong time in terms of talent in that area. Would you agree? I would agree. Um, and I had the opportunity to play with some of the players who were more my age and a little older, but I also had the opportunity to play with the guys that came after us. And, you know, that was, they were really good. I mean, they, they changed the game. And Julia serving was in that category a little later, but um, there were some really great players came out of there during that time that, you know, went on to the NBA and all that and were really good players. Probably the most famous player who came out of New York city is then Lou Alcindor, later Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. When did you meet him? Well, I I knew of him. It's a pretty good story. I was in college, and I, so I, I was at North Carolina. But when I came home, I had a younger brother who was really a wizard. Like when he was, he was in the third grade and played on the eighth grade team. And so one one time when I came back from North Carolina. He and I were talking. Oh, he came in the door and he said, well, you play against a big guy today. I said, really? And I'm thinking grammar school, you know, he's probably 5'10 or something. And he, I said, who is that to me? He said, little Louie. I said, well, how big is he? He said, six feet ten. And I went, what? <laughs> and then later, I, uh, he, he, he grew up kind of down a, a hill from where I lived. I used to go down the hill to get my bus and all that to go to school, but uh, they were, he, he played on a, on a grammar, he grew up in a grammar school area that, that was fairly close to me. So there were times when he came up to the schoolyard I played in, uh, and I wasn't playing then, but I was in college and I saw him play in the summer once. And I couldn't believe it. I mean, he was so good. You know, he was over seven feet tall, but he, when I saw him play, he could play in the backcourt. He was really, really talented. And I knew his coach, Jack Dunahue, who was, you know, a very good coach. And I knew that he had brought him up during the summers to uh, the mountains where he had a camp and just worked with him all the time. And he became, you know, probably one of the best ever to play the game. Arguably the best college basketball player ever. He went 88 and 2. Yeah, you can't take him off the list. That's for sure. You know, well, for those I, who I, don't I, know, I, Lou Alcindor at UCLA went eighty-eight and two and won three national championships. And back then, it was freshman ineligibility for college athletics or college basketball. And his freshman team routinely beat the UCLA varsity, who had just won multiple national championships in a row. That's true. I remember that. Um, and, you know, and, and, and he had the opportunity to play for John Wooden, who was obviously from Indiana, but, you know, he had such great coaching along with the great talent that he had that by the time he got to the pros, he was already, 
you know, heads above most of the players in the league. Speaking of great coaches, you went to North Carolina to play basketball and played for, quite frankly, a legendary coach in the college ranks named Frank McGuire. What was it like to play with him, play for him, and later on coach with him? Well, he was, um, at that time, he had just won the national championship and went 32-0. and And that was in 1957, I think. I went there in 19... I, I graduated from high school in 1958. Um, and I went there. So the reason I went there was because of that team and because of Frank McGuire. Um, he might have been the most magnetic man I ever saw in my life. I mean, he, he just... When he walked in a room, you just automatically knew he was there. And he was a great coach. He, he had the ability, different than a lot of coaches, and, and actually different than the, the second coach I had at North Carolina, Dean Smith, in the sense that you would go in and he would just have you scrimmage all day long. He did us some sets and things you know that he wanted you to do. But then you just scrimmage, and he would stop the scrimmage and stop it. And so what he did through that process was to, he got five men to play like one, and both offensively and defensively. And he just did it by the force of his own personality in a lot of ways. Uh, but he was a guy that, I don't know, he just was so different than anybody else I ever met. And I would say that most of the players in North Carolina thought that way. And, you know, he had been successful uh, at St. John's in North Carolina. He went into the pros for a year and coached Wilt and was fairly successful at that. I think he won 49 or 50 games and, you know, lost to the Celtics in a seven-game series. But he was just just a different type guy. He could have probably been the governor, too. You know, he, he was that kind of man. <laughs> and it's – is my memory – Correct that in the 57 North Carolina National Basketball Championship team, they beat Wilt and Kansas, Wilt Chamberlain yeah. and the Kansas Jayhawks in that game? In, in the finals. Actually, the last two games, you know, the semifinals and the finals, went three overtimes, I think, and they won them. Um, and, and they were undefeated the whole year. So, you know, he, he, he had that ability to, if he had good player, you know, good enough players, uh, he he was going to win, and he was going to win almost every game. Your senior season at University of North Carolina featured a new head coach. You mentioned him just a few moments ago. His name is Dean Smith. What was it like, not only to have him follow McGuire, but also what I'm going to guess was a lifelong friendship with one of the greatest coaches in the history of sport. You're right. Um, you know, after you had Frank McGuire, who was like the son, I mean, um, Dean had been the, my freshman coach when I went there. He had just come with Frank McGuire, and then he became the head coach of my senior year. So I was around him for four years, and you you hit it right on the head. Dean Smith was a really, really good man. And as a basketball coach, he was so far ahead of the game that I didn't even understand it in the first couple of times I was around <laughs> him. I really didn't. Uh, he worked on defense a lot with the varsity and basically 
some of the things he was telling me I had never heard before, and I had played a lot by that time. Um, and then it just got better. Uh, he he was where Frank you scrimmage a lot with Dean. The practices were timed to the second, and he had a drill for everything. But it all kind of at the end would would um, lead into whatever he was going to do offensively or defensively. So he was really well thought out coach. And then after I left him and I went to South Carolina, I, what happened was I went to uh, North Carolina, graduated, and then I became uh, a graduate assistant and went through law school. And then after law school, instead of going into law, I went into uh, basketball. And Frank McGuire hired me at South Carolina, so I went down there. Uh, but he, I, I thought he was fabulous, to tell you the truth. And, and he was a better man than he was a coach. And he was a great, great coach. And probably, would it be fair to say before we move on, the greatest recruiter in the history of college basketball, given the talent he accumulated over the decades at North Carolina? He was. I mean, he, he ended up getting great, great players. Um, and then he, then he had, you know, his teams reflected that, though. I mean, we, on one team, I mean, he had a, like he had Michael Jordan and Sam Perkins and a myriad of other players on the team that were that good. Um, so it, was, it, it really was something to watch him as he kept going. Yeah, I don't know that this podcast is long enough to list all of the first round draft picks who played for Dean Smith. I think that the 83 84 team that Indiana famously beat. I think in the Sweet 16, had four or five number one draft picks on the roster. And yeah, IU's lone number one draft pick was Uwe Blop. Yeah, no, you're right. It was a great team. Uh, and I think they won the championship somewhere in there. I forget when it was. But I was happy to see Dean win it because, you know, Frank had won one at 32 and 0, and then Dean came back and won it you know, somewhere in his first, I'd say, six or seven or eight years. You mentioned turning down uh, law firms and a career in law to stay with basketball. Why was it so powerful, such a powerful pull on your life that you, you know, maybe turned down opportunity to uh, work at some of the most prestigious law firms in the biggest city in the world because you wanted to coach basketball at North Carolina and South Carolina? You know, I, I don't know that I could explain that. Um, I just remember that I had a job interview with a law firm, Nixon Mudge, and it went on forever, Mitchell, and uh, and, uh, and it was on Wall Street. So they had already offered me a job, so I had to go there, and I met all the partners on this trip. And then I, the last guy I met was uh, uh, Nixon, and after I finished with him, they were taking me to the elevator and they walked me through the law library. <laughs> and when I was walking through the library with this guy, I looked around and all the guys my age were sitting there at these big benches with books up to the ceiling. And I thought, I don't know if I want to do this for the rest of my life. <laughs> and by the time I got to the elevator, I thought, I'm not going to do this. And so I basically went back and Dean hired me to begin with as an assistant coach 
And then Frank called him up about two or three months later and asked Dean if I could go to South Carolina because he had lost his assistant. So that's what happened. Talk a little bit just for a second, because as we jump to your pro career, the differences between pro basketball players, college basketball players back then, it seems like that the distinction isn't as distinct now as it was in the 60s, 70s and 80s. Did you really enjoy college basketball more or the pro or were there just positives and negatives to each? Well, I I enjoyed college basketball a lot. I really did. And I I didn't think that I was going to, and actually what I thought was that the coaching on the college level wouldn't be up to, I mean, on the pro level wouldn't be like the coaching in the college level. Uh, But I thought, because I I thought someday I wanted to be an administrator. That's when I was thinking of going to the pros. I wanted to be an administrator, and I thought that after what I observed was that the administration in college was better than at that time than the administration in the pros. Well, I was wrong. Once I got into the NBA and was coaching, I thought all the coaches were like really good, <laughs> really good, uh, because their game was broken down into smaller segments where you had to make decisions that really affected the game and they were expert at it. They knew the clock, the time, everything. Uh, and they knew when they wanted to do something and when it wasn't working and they would change up and, you know, their timeouts were really good. Now I was with Larry Brown in the pros my first year. So he's about as good a coach as you could ever get. And particularly when he was in the pros, I, I, I remember thinking, cause I played with Larry, thinking, well, I wonder what makes him a good pro coach because, you know, we came from the same background and all that. And I found out in the first day, I looked at him and he was constantly going over fundamentals with the players. Now, these are pros. And when he when we got through the first practice, I thought, now I know why he's as good as he is because he was very adamant that everything had to be fundamentally right. Was it at this time, and I hate to bring up probably your one of your most famous quotes, uh, Donnie Walsh once said of Larry Brown, he's only happy when he's unhappy. That's right. <laughs> That's exactly <laughs> did you, right. Did you realize that in North Carolina or later? I think I realized that just knowing Larry, and, I, and, and it's a little overstated, in a certain sense. I mean, you have to know what I mean. Larry is a terrific guy, but when he's coaching, he's never happy. I mean, he's not, and you could play the greatest game you ever, you ever saw. And basically Larry would have something wrong with it. And he'd, he'd commiserate about it. He'd be upset about it. And so people around him thought, well, this guy's crazy. And I said, no, 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 you got to understand Larry's, only happy when he's unhappy. So, <laughs> because I thought, I didn't think people got him, you know, because I really liked him a lot. We were very close friends. And, but I knew he had a funny effect on the people who didn't quite know him. So I always used to explain him that way. Well, you just got to know him. And the only other guy that's like, like that is Doug Moe, who, you know, understood him <laughs> like I did. That's right. That's right. 
It, but but Coach Brown always looked tortured on the sideline, like he is. tortured. <laughs> That's what I mean. <laughs> but <laughs> you know, but he 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 was so into the game, and then remains that way right now. He's not coaching. He has to be in misery because Larry is everything. He sees himself as a coach, and he loves coaching. He wants to coach. And so when he's coaching, he's so intense that, you know, it's something to watch. And I watched it on a daily basis for about two or three years. And then when he came here, another four. You know, he just – but I think he's a great, great coach. He's terrific. He's he's won a national championship. I believe he won one with Kansas with Danny Manning. And then didn't he go on to win an NBA championship? Yeah, with Detroit. With Detroit, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and he always the thing that Larry could do is come into a team that was let's say good or not great, but good, and immediately they, you were better. I mean, just immediately. Yeah, he did that right. for us with the Pacers. You know, he came in, and we had really advanced in the playoffs a lot. We was always we were always getting in it, but getting out and knocked out in the first round. And his first year, we go to the Eastern Conference Finals. And then second year, we go to the Eastern Conference Finals. So, I mean, he was just terrific, terrific coach. We, recently, we had former Purdue coach Gene Cady on the podcast. He was uh, warm and engaging and, and generous and terrific, and it was a, an amazing honor to speak with him. One of the things I asked him, he grew up in Kansas and then matriculated to Indiana, actually through Kentucky and then Indiana, here you are, New York City, go to North Carolina, and then you end up in Indiana. I asked Coach Katie about the hotbeds of basketball that were the states that he worked and lived in. Let me ask you the same question. New York City, North Carolina, and then eventually Indiana. How would you rate Indiana's love of basketball compared to those other states? And, and was it a joy to work in an environment where the game is so beloved? Yeah, it was, and I was lucky. I grew up in New York where the game, but there's a difference between all three. Um, I grew up in New York where everybody, because if you think about it, there aren't a lot of baseball fields in New York that kids can go out and play in, and football, same thing. But everybody, there's basketball courts all over the city. So it became, at least on high school and below level, uh, a city game. I mean, everybody plays basketball in New York. So you, you get the love of the game through playing it and all that in New York. You really do. Um, and then I went to North Carolina where it was the ACC at that time was like World War Three. I mean, every school went after it. There were a lot of good teams. The play was really good. But what really differentiated with the fans were, I mean, just berserk. You know, if you went, if you were a Duke graduate and you wanted to, you rooted for Duke, you couldn't even talk to a, a guy from North Carolina the day <laughs> of the game. I mean, it really was. It was very intense, and you ended up with a tournament at the end of the year. No matter how good you did in the um, in those days, no matter how good you did during the regular season, all it did was seeded you for the tournament. If you didn't win the tournament, you didn't get in the NCAA. 
And that's what I was getting ready to ask you about that. That's back when the NCAA was, I think, 32 teams, and so many terrific teams never actually made it to the tournament based on the low number of folks who actually got to participate in the tournament. But you mentioned great teams, and we're going to go back for just a second. I would like you to please talk about one that you, I'm assuming, witnessed firsthand, and then I know you ended up coaching one of its players. And that was the 1973-74 North Carolina State team that had Tom Burleson and the all-time sky jumper David Thompson, who actually beat UCLA and ended their NCAA championship winning streak. What was it like to see that particular team in action? Well, it was uh, it was something because they had a good team, but they had you know what today is a little more regular. Uh, they had the one athlete that it was way above everybody else, and that was David Thompson. I mean, David Thompson was doing Michael Jordan type stuff back then. Um, Michael probably was better, which is hard to believe in a lot of ways for somebody who was around David. But David was really a phenomenal player, and so that's what that's what differentiated them from everybody else at that during that time. And they were they were terrific to watch. I, I think I saw them play against Marquette or somebody, and uh, who had a really good team, and and they had great athletes on the team. And David was up above all of them. I mean, it was really something to watch. You also probably witnessed one way or another the 75-76 IU National Championship team that went 32-0. and What were your impressions of that team, if you can remember it very well? Well, I, um, I had met uh, Bobby Knight uh, with Dean Smith on, a, on a, like an all-star game where you go to recruit players and all. And so they they were friendly, and I got to know Bobby through that. Uh, but then when when Bobby had that team, I remember being in New York, I think it was, and watching him in person. And I was I thought his coaching was cr- uh, really good, and particularly the players he had fit right into what he was doing. And so um, knowing his personality, and he had a great mind for the game, I, as good as anybody. And I, I thought they were great. They were a lot of good players, but they played completely together as a team. They just had all the parts that you need to have a chance to be a championship team. When you see two people you know, and one you know really well, and I'm assuming uh, one you know pretty well, and that is, for example, 1981, March 30th, IU plays North Carolina in the national championship game. Day is also infamous uh, for President Reagan being shot. What was it like when you would see friends of yours in the coaching community or the basketball community play each other in the ultimate prize high stakes game? Is it just tough because you know someone that you really like is going to be hurting the next day? Yeah, because and it's it's for another reason, really. It's because you know both people. You know they're both great coaches. You know only one can come out victorious. And so you you, you kind of know that it's going to be the way the ball bounces in that game. 
And so that, that's kind of how I felt about those things. But it was because you had two great coaches. One last question before we move on. What do you think of, because he was just on the podcast, and like I said, he was just terrific, especially a kind to me and, and a lifelong IU fan who's never rooted for Purdue to win anything, yet Coach Katie came on and was terrific. What do you think of Coach Katie's tenure at Purdue to come into the Big Ten? I think his first year at the Big Ten was the year IU won the national championship with Isaiah Thomas. And for him to have what is probably next to Knight and Tom Izzo, uh, the best run of coaching in the Big Ten in the modern era? Well, you know, I watched his teams play, and I got to know Gene. I thought he was – I really liked him as a guy. And uh, he had a toughness to him that I thought his teams had. You know, they got it from him. And I don't care what kind of team he had in any one year – he was going to be difficult to beat. And the thing that amazed me about Gene was uh, something I read. I didn't really ever talk to him about it, but he was a football player who became a great basketball coach. I always wanted to talk to him about that, but I never really got the opportunity to do it. How did he pick it up? You know, He talked about that on the podcast. I'll send you the link. He was, he talked a lot about football and you can see that toughness, Speaking of someone who looked miserable on the sideline, he always had something to say, and and he needed that sort of toughness because he entered the Big Ten's coaching ranks really at almost the Big Ten's peak and competed as well or better than anyone. Yeah, I, I think that's true. And, and and I know it came from football, but basketball and football are, are somewhat different in the sense that basketball is you can't program each play. You know what I mean? Uh, you've got to right. kind of have a flexibility to read the defense and to when you see them guarding the play that that you just ran and you don't have the shot, you got to know what to do. And usually there are definite things you can you can go to. Um, whereas in football, you know, it's it's more programmed. You know, you run a play and it either works or it doesn't work. Uh, now there are some in the pros. There are some guys that can make it work when it didn't work. But <laughs> you're being college, you don't see that. But I, I, you know, I just thought it was a different men- mentality, but he, he was able to perform in both areas. So I, I was always impressed by that. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, the Crown Plaza Hotel and Grain Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the law firm of Bose, McKinney, and Evans, and the Bose Public Affairs Group, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Our guest on the Leaders and Legends podcast today is famous basketball wizard and leader without peer, Donnie Walsh. Donnie, let me ask you a quick question. Is there a Hoosier legend or leader you particularly admire? Well, politically, um, Senator Luger, to me, and I've been at different states, grew up in a different area, um, went to school in different areas, coached in different areas. 
Peter, uh, Senator Luger, to me, was the best, um, I don't, he was a senator, but politician that I, that I ever saw. I thought he was fabulous in every area. And I always had a great deal of admiration for him. We were lucky so enough that was, several months ago to do a podcast with, uh, Jim Shella and Gail Lowry and someone you know very well, a man named Jim Morris that talked about yeah. the career of Richard Luger and the impact he had on this state. Well, he was he he represented the state and the country so well it was hard to believe. I thought I, he was very well spoken. You could tell he was a very moral man. He was doing the job for the right reasons. Um, I just really had a lot of admiration for him. In the late seventies, you make the jump to the pro ranks hired by Larry Brown. And then you end up coaching the team, uh, the Denver nuggets uh, for a year. Speaking of a collection of talent, I looked up the roster for the nuggets for the year you coached George McGinnis, Alex English, Dan Issel, David Thompson, what was it like to coach such an amazing array of talent? I think there's at least two or three Hall of Famers on the list that I just read. Yeah, I enjoyed coaching uh, the NBA players. And I learned a lot from the NBA players a couple of years before that, when I first came into it with Larry. Um, because the, the pro game is completely different than the college game. Um but it isn't because you just give them the ball and let them do what they want to do. Um, basically, it's different because the skill levels, the talent, the knowledge is all way up there. And so they know if something's going to work or it's not going to work. <laughs> they knew before the coach knew in many, in many times. And so I would, you know, I would talk to them about those things. And I learned a lot from talking to them what the difference was between college and pro and there is a big difference uh but it was enjoyable uh, i liked george mcginnis a lot he was a, a good man um <clears throat> david thompson i thought was one of the most talented guys up until michael came in the league he was somewhat like michael not maybe as well-rounded as michael but he had that kind of talent and and he was fundamentally a good player too um and Alex English, I basically traded George, or I was involved in the trade that sent George back here to Indiana and Alex to us. And I had had coached Alex in South Carolina. So I really felt comfortable with that trade. And it worked out really well because he became one of the highest scorers in pro history. And that was a great era of... Is it fair to say that that time period, that era of NBA, wasn't necessarily known uh, for its defense because you had just an array of terrific scorers, David Thompson, George Gervin, Alex English, the list goes on and on, Pete Maravich, of people who could just light it up and go for 50 or more nightly. Exactly. Uh, and there were other players. There were a lot of other players in the league at the same time. I mean, it was a, a really a talented, it, it was a, a big jump up in talent. Uh, because, as you know, the college had talent too, because in those days it wasn't easy to go from 
like if you were a junior or something, to go from college to the pros like as a junior or a sophomore or something. Now the young guys are doing it as freshmen. Um, you didn't have a lot of that. There were maybe one or two that had hardship, which is the only way you could do it. Uh, but the pros were just, you know, they had played so many games, they were men, and that made a big difference. They were men. They knew how to use their bodies. They knew how to get their bodies ready to play. You know, they they could play very physically and not get hurt. <laughs> it was it was phenomenal difference. But I uh, I enjoyed that a lot. And the more I got into it and was into it, and, and that lasted a long time, um, I really loved it. I, I I think it's the highest level of basketball that um, is in this world right now. Let me make a statement and you just say whether it's true or false or whether you agree or disagree. Uh, we've talked about the era in basketball in which you were coaching in the Nuggets. The NBA was uh, pretty well documented at its nadir. The NBA uh, finals were shown on tape delay and various other uh, aspects of the fact that the game just wasn't, wasn't doing well. So the statement I'm going to make, and you please address it, the NBA was saved by the arrival of Magic Johnson and Larry Bird. And David Stern, I would say and David that. Stern. That's true, David Stern. Right. Uh, because there's no doubt that Larry and Magic had a gigantic influence on the game. But what David did is he took a league that was a regional league. If you think about it, it was on the one was on one coast and the other on the other coast. Um, and he turned it into, first of all, by adding franchises in different cities, he made it a national game. And then after he made it a national game, he made it an international game. But I would say this, he was, he was not the commissioner that long before Larry and uh, Magic came in the league. And they did because they had one on one coast and the other on the other coast. And they were phenomenal. I mean, they, I remember the first time I saw Magic, we were playing him in an exhibition game. And you didn't realize how big this guy was. I mean, he was six feet eight, six feet nine, with a big body. And yet he, and in those days, a guy like that couldn't play point guard. And he was a point guard. I can remember one of our players coming over to me in the exhibition game and saying, Donnie, I think this magic's going to be really good. I said, what do you mean? He said, he's like a power forward coming down at you. And he's <laughs> a point guard. <laughs> when, when did so, you yeah, first I, get, I would agree. When did you first become aware of Larry Bird as a player? Well, I saw him play in college, and I could tell he was really good. But when I got into the pros and – and, and saw him in the pros. I thought it was phenomenal. I, I thought he, I still think he's, you know, it's hard to pick the best player and all that. Um, but to me, Larry could do everything. And, and, and then on top of that, he was brilliant as a player. He knew exactly what play to make at the right time whether it be a pass, getting a rebound. He knew when the important things were there. And he had every skill 
you know, guys can get into the NBA on one skill. Larry had 10 skills, I thought. You know, <laughs> it was nothing he couldn't do. And he, he always did it at the right time. You know, if he threw the ball behind his ear or something, it was the right play. It wasn't just to look good. And he did everything in a split second. And so he was an unusual combination. And as I said, magic was somewhat the same. So th- that was an ideal rivalry. And, and I get it as it develops. I don't know about it initially. It was a very respectful uh, rivalry. Both guys respected each other, and, and it, that, that that bore well for the NBA that it was like that. No matter how hard they played and hit each other and all that, that was there. In 1984, you come to the Pacers as an assistant coach, uh, and then coach, I believe, was George Irvin, Irvine. And yes. uh, so you've stayed in basketball all these years, turned down – law firms and and making money through your law degree before we get into your pacer years which will take up the bulk of the rest of the podcast was there ever any point that you regretted it and was like oh shoot i should have done x instead of y well i also had five children (laughs) so yeah i mean there were a lot of moments where i you know i worried about it because you know it's a hit or miss situation as a job opportunity. Uh, but i tell you the truth, with Indiana, way back when I was at South Carolina, I can remember reading, because I did a lot of reading back then, um, you know, in sports magazines and that type of thing. And I kept reading about Indiana. I kept reading about, well, the basketball, you know, what you mentioned, uh, the, the Hoosier game and all that kind of stuff. And, and in particular, the high school tournament which, you know, was on class. Any class could play against each other and meet each other in the finals. Uh, so that was unusual. And I had a guy that worked with us in South Carolina who scouted, and he told me about how unbelievable it was. So uh, right away, I, I had this kind of thing in my head. That must be, I'd love to see what that place is like. And then I started reading about people in other areas, you know, Kurt Vonnegut and people like that. And I, or get to sit and watch TV and Florence Henderson from Indiana. I'm thinking, guy, there are a lot of really cool people from Indiana. <laughs> uh, and then when George asked me to come out here, I was really, really up to try to um, see what it was all about. And obviously, I enjoyed it. I've been here for, I guess, 30 years, more than that. 40, maybe. Was it always one of your goals to be in management? You eventually became, after assistant coach of the Pacers, became the general manager. Is that something that you wanted to do, or were you torn between staying on the bench and moving to the front office? No. At a certain point when I was in South Carolina, it was right at the end, that I actually left there with the idea. Well, I was taking the bar exam 13 years after I went to law school. And I was, I remember I was in the, um, the, the course, the bar course to get ready for it. And Larry Brown called me up and basically said, Donnie, you want to come out and be my assistant? And I had already made my mind up. I was going to try to go into law. But the minute he said it, I went, yeah, yeah. So I went out and I met with him and 
And at that time, I told Larry and I told uh, Carl Shear, who was the general manager at that time, I don't want to stay as a coach. I want to have an opportunity to be a general manager someday. Because when I really thought about it, I thought that my my talents laid in 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 a lot of different things about basketball. And when I analyze coaches, the best coaches are the guys that there's one way to play, this is the way it is, and, and they get a team to play that way. I knew ten ways to play and so I didn't think it benefited me as a coach. And so I was really in the back of my mind thinking about uh, I would love to become a general manager. Uh, so that basically is what my thought was when I came into the pros and I didn't have the opportunity in Denver, although, you know, if I had stayed there, I might've had an opportunity. But then when George asked me to come down here as a coach, the Simons gave me that opportunity. And, you know, I, I, I really love working for them. I really love being a general manager at that and then the later president and all that. But it was more, it was suited, I was suited more for that than I was coaching. You came to the Pacers when they were struggling a bit as a franchise. They hadn't done very well and infamously had to have a telethon to even save the team before um, uh, the Pacers uh, were sold to the Simon brothers. And But the Pacers had a terrific run in the ABA. What did you, as someone who understands the game of basketball, understands talent, what did you think of the ABA versus the NBA in those kind of early to mid-70s years? Well, I knew they had a lot of really good players because when they, they, when they opened the league up, uh, they were competing with the NBA, and the only way for them to get the best players was to offer them a lot of money. So it got to be known that, like, you know, some of these great players uh, coming out of college, if they had their choice, they would probably go to the ABA teams. And I think that's what I thought of the league. I thought it was a really, really talented league. Uh, I thought that, you know, on the other part of it, uh, the backing and all that wasn't as good as the NBA. And the NBA actually got a lot better. But um, so I, I, I noticed that, like, the ABA lost teams as it went on which meant a lot of teams weren't making it. Um, and, but I knew this because, you know, I had players that I coached in college that uh, played in the league. Uh, and so they would come back and talk to me about the players in the league. And I uh, had played with Roger Brown. I knew how good he was. You know, I knew a lot of the players that were in the ABA, and I knew they were great players. And so the way it turned out, at least in my mind, was that when the ABA um, disbanded and the players were coming into the NBA, I thought that was the biggest change for the NBA of anything, really. Because if you look, and somebody told me this, but then I tried to check it out, I think it's true, that the next year after the ABA players came into the NBA, 12 or 13 of the all-stars were from the ABA. That's, that's, that's an incredibly high number. Yeah. So, 
I think that really helped the league a lot, the NBA. The Pacers won the ABA championship in 1970 and again in 72 and in 73. The NBA champion for those years were 1970, the Knicks, 1972, the Lakers, and 1973, the Knicks again. What do you think the Pacers would have done in a matchup with these teams that are some of the greatest NBA teams of all time? I think it would have been very competitive and that they had a chance to beat them uh, because they were that good. I mean, they had Mel Daniels, who was a great player um, and a great center, which is important. They had George, who was really good. They had Metalicki, who I guess backed him up. And then they had Roger Brown, who was a great player. They had guards like Billy Keller, who could really shoot the ball. Uh, and and Freddie, um, Freddie uh, Carter, I guess. Um, that was a great player. So, And I knew this because I, I had guys that were playing the league. In fact, Kevin Joyce, who I coached, was here for a year. Um, mm-hmm. But I also knew guys who were on other teams. And so, you know, they come up to me and say, Hey, Donnie, um, you play with that guy, Roger Brown? I said, yeah, in high school I played with him. And he said, they said, well, now when I played with Roger, he was a great shooter and a great jumper. I mean, he could jump out of the gym. So they said, he's got more moves. And they were almost talking like he was Oscar Robertson. And I'm saying, well, so I saw Roger when I first came back here. And I happened to have seen the film they had on the ABA uh, team, their ABA team. And I saw a Roger was, he had more moves than anybody. And I, so when I saw Roger, he was up in the gym one day. And I went up there and I said, hey, Roger, when I knew you, you were a jumper and a shooter. Where did you get all that stuff? And he laughed. He said, yeah, you did know when I could jump. He said, <laughs> he said, well, he said, the year I was out of basketball, I went and I just studied films of Oscar, Jerry West. I just got filmed them and studied and copied their moves and, and he could he, he copied him real well. <laughs> he was he was that good. When you're but the that general manager, go ahead. That, that was a, a terrific team. I mean, I don't care what league they were in; they, they were they were a great team. Uh, and they had Slick Leonard, who I've always admired as a coach. When I came in the league, Slick was a guy that would you know meet you and treat you nicely and. You know, let you know, oh, you're in it, buddy, you know, and that kind of stuff. He was terrific. I liked him a lot. When you're the general manager of a, a professional team, um, how much do you take into account what the fans want or what you think is the best move to grow or increase the fan base? I'm referencing, of course, the decision 1987 to draft Reggie Miller over Steve Alford there was a I was in the army at the time so I wasn't here during the draft but I remember reading about just what a huge groundswell and pressure that you perhaps felt to choose the Newcastle guard who had just led Indiana to a national championship is your thought process it's what's best for the team who's the best player or is there some aspect of well if we draft this guy he may not be as good as the other guy, but it'll put butts in seats. Well, uh, you know, I I would say this. For me personally, 
I would always take the player that was best for the team because in the long run, you know, it's going to put uh, people in the seats if you do the right thing. Even in the short run, if you do things for the wrong reason, they just don't work. And the truth is, as much as people, uh, and I'm not talking about Indiana specifically here, but if you, let's say, draft the guy and bring him in just because he's, uh, you know, from that area and it doesn't work, he will get treated terribly. <laughs> I can tell you that. Um, <laughs> That's a true point. So, you know, I, I always felt like you only have one choice as a GM, and, and that is to take the best player for your team. And I thought Steve was a great college shooter, actually. And I, But I thought he didn't have a real NBA game in the sense that he was a six-foot-one two-guard. And he really wasn't at his best as a point guard. Uh, so I, I, but I did tell him one time, I thought he'd be a great coach someday. I'm glad that he, he got that opportunity and proved it. Did you ever get a sense of self vindication as uh, Miller's career uh, continued to grow and blossom, eventually becoming a hall of famer? Not that you were beating your own chest. In other words, Hey, I'm the expert here. Just listen to me. I'll do okay. But just like, you know what? We took the guy who may not have been a popular choice here in Indiana, but look how he turned out, not only on the court, but off the court. Well, I was happy about that. I can't argue that point. But I wasn't beating my chest or anything. I was happy that it worked and that Reggie did become beyond even what I thought he was going to become. And they did integrate himself into the culture of this city, which he did really well. Um, but I never really, once he was here, I, I basically felt fortunate that we had him because he was winning the games. I mean, and I don't mean all by himself, but he was the guy that at the end of the game, throwing the ball, he shot it and went in all the time. So um, <laughs> it really worked for us as a team, and uh, I, I and it helped us get further up in the standings, and then further up in the playoffs to the point where we were a contending team for quite a while. Perhaps Reggie Miller's most famous shot, and I'm going to also ask you about what happened at Market Square in Madison Square Garden. But Miller's most famous shot was the one he hit over Michael Jordan in the playoffs against Chicago. Bird famously, coach then, uh, then coach Larry Bird, famously uh, didn't have his expression change at all as everyone in the arena went crazy. What was your reaction to that shot? Well, I was, you know, I, I knew, I saw it, the play we were in, I saw Reggie run out to the top. I saw Michael was going to grab him. And Reggie gave him a quick push. And, and then I looked, and Reggie was all by himself. And, you know, I hate to say this, but when I ever saw him take a shot with nobody guarding him, I almost counted the points before they went on the board, before the ball went in. Because I just knew after a while, that was fairly in his career. I knew he's not going to miss the shot, and he didn't. But what people forget is that there was six tenths of a second left, and Michael Jordan, I was under the basket that he shot at. That ball, to me, when he shot it, 
at the end of the game. I thought, oh, my God, that's in. And it rattled around the rim and went out. So, you know, good fortune goes both ways. (laughs) (laughs) We have uh, uh, ancillary helpers on this show. We have supporters of the Leaders and Legends podcast who I reach out to when we're going to have people on and I asked them to help me uh, come up with questions or gave, maybe give me a little nugget of information. So the absolutely wonderful and amazing and one of the greatest people I've ever met is a guy named Bill Benner. Oh, and, Bill, I asked, yeah. and I asked him, I told him you were coming on and I asked Bill for some thoughts and he sent me a note and he said, quote, make sure you ask Donnie about what he did right before Reggie went for eight points in nine seconds in the garden. Oh yeah. That's yeah. I'm the one who told the story. So, um, well during that game, that was the first game of the series and we were up there cause they had a better record than we did. And we had played them really close the year before, I believe. So anyhow, when I I'm sitting there at the end of the, toward the end of the fourth quarter, it's about a minute and something to go. And I, we're down by eight points. I think the game's over. So I am mad. <laughs> and I, you know, I didn't get mad at the place. I'm just mad that we didn't play better and we were going to lose. And so I walk out of the arena, I mean, out of the uh, seating area and go in the tunnel and, and go into the locker room. And I'm, uh, it was an open locker room, though. It wasn't uh, our locker room. So I went in there and I shut the door. And I'm just walking around and kind of talking to myself. All of a sudden, a knock comes at the door, and I'm not in a good mood. So it ends up being Mel Daniels. He goes, "Hey, Donnie," I said, "No, I don't. Don't give me anything. I don't want to talk to you. I'm not. I'm not, I'm not very in good mood." <laughs> <laughs> and he kept it up, and I got mad. So I ran to the door. I said, "What do you want?" He said, "Reggie just tied the game." And I said, yeah, "Mel, don't fool with me." So he said, come here. And so we walked down to an area where there were some guys watching a television set. And so I walk in the room and I I look at the TV set and Reggie's on the foul line and I'm starting to get my bearings now. Mel just told me this was tied and now Reggie's on the foul. So I said, no, are you telling me that if Reggie makes these free throws, we're going to be up? And he said, yeah. I, I was in disbelief. I couldn't believe it. I mean, and then, you know, obviously I went back and looked at all that and thought, holy cow, what a, what a sequence I missed here. Did Now, I have to ask this. Reggie Miller is one of the all-time famous trash talkers. So did he ever talk a little smack about you uh, walking down the tunnel and not watching it? Never. Never. Never well, said I'll a word to me. I'll have to get word to uh, Reggie uh, through uh, our good friend and fellow Howl Hornet, Russ Tuttle, whose security uh, helped make the Pacers the team that it is. Isn't that right, Mr. Walsh? Definitely. <laughs> Definitely. We would love to have Reggie Miller on the well, podcast so we could ask about Reggie, it Reggie knows that I may have walked out, but I was the happiest guy in the whole place when I walked out of the Madison Square Garden that night. And that was one thing I wanted to ask you real quick. Did you grow up a Knicks fan? And if so, what was it like for you? Obviously, you were you were blue and gold. 
but to see your Pacers go up against the Knicks for all those classic series in the 90s. Well, it was great, because not because I'm from New York and all that, but because we were always trying to get further up the line in the regular season and then to do well in the playoffs. And the Knicks were always the team that, I, at least in my mind, we had to beat in order to keep going. And the first time we went up there, I think we lost in a seven-game series. And that was the, that was either, yeah, the, that was the second time. And so in that one, we won the game. <laughs> and so it was the kind of mark of excellence. They had Riley as the coach. They had a lot of good players. They were a good team. Uh, and I thought we were a good team. And so for two or three, maybe more years, we battled them and, and got our wins and and got further along and became a, you know, a, a Final Four team quite a few times during that period. Six times, I think, during my period. Then later, Larry uh, put a team together that made it twice to the uh, Final Four, what I call Final Four. Two quick was, questions was, about. I knew go we ahead, had to sir. beat New York. I knew we had to beat New York to go further, so I always wanted to beat them. That quick is question. key joy. There may be little joy, but that's <laughs> what made you th- a. What made you think Larry Bird was going to be such a successful coach, which he clearly was, and two, when Bird was a player and you were a general manager uh, for the Pacers, did you ever try to trade for him, bring the hometown, the home state guy home? One time, uh, because if, uh, the guy, it wasn't Red Auerbach, it was another guy who was calling me up all the time and saying, you know, he wanted to get a couple of our players. And I said, okay, give me Larry Bird and I'll do it. And he, he he couldn't do it. <laughs> and it was later in Larry's career, but he wouldn't do it. That was the only time. Uh, but I didn't think, he, I, I didn't know if we would do it. But I'm pretty sure we would have. But I just wanted to see if he was, you know, just trying to get a couple of players I had for a cheap price. And so I found out, well, he's not going to give up Larry, so there's no one else I want. I'm not going to do this. Uh, but anyhow, um, what was the second question? Uh, what made you think that Larry Bird was going to be such a terrific coach? I, I'll be honest. I, I thought he would just from watching him, and I didn't know him that well then. Um, but I talked to enough people that knew him, and I knew he was a smart guy. But we had a – he came down here to meet with uh, me and Herb. And I had already been up there, and – and I met with him down here for a couple of days. And one of the days, we were in a little conference room. And I said, Larry, um, okay, if you, um, if you take this job, can you tell me how you're going to coach this team? And he took me from the first day of training camp to the finals. And I mean in detail about what he would do. The first thing that jumped into my mind is, well, before I got to the first game, I would go out and, you know, Donnie, I've never coached, so I would hire two really good assistants, which turned out to be Rick Carlisle 
and Dick Carter, who was a great, great defensive coach. So I knew right then, oh, okay, this guy's for real. But after listening to him, he went in detail about how he would coach the team, what he would do, all the way from game one all the way to the finals of the NBA. It took about an hour and a half, two hours. I have never had anybody do anything like that with me. So when I walked out of the room that time, I knew this guy's going to be great. And he was. Let me ask you a quick question about 1991, the playoffs. What was it like to watch Bird and Chuck Person go at each other, uh, both with their game and with their mouths? Well, Chuck knows, I would say this. <laughs> there was never a day when he could out-talk Larry Bird, that's for sure. Um, but he did. He tried. you know. And, and I think Larry <laughs> respected that. Larry respected Chuck because he really tried to play hard against him. But he did it his whole career. I mean, from the first game he played against Larry, he was trying out playing him. But Larry was just one of those guys. It was very difficult to outplay him. Uh, and, and Chuck knew that. I remember Chuck coming up to me, and this is true, too. Uh, and he says, Donna Walsh. I said, yeah, what's up, Chuck? He said, you know, they got Larry Bird listed at six feet nine. And he said, I'm telling you, Donnie, he's at least seven feet tall. <laughs> <laughs> and I think he's right. <laughs> I think he was right. The Chuck was about six, eight or six, nine, but Larry always looked so much bigger than him. We're going to. But one thing, they could both shoot the ball and they're both competitive guys. Larry was, you know, Larry was Larry. What can I tell you? Was it ever frustrating to have so many Celtics fans at Pacers games or when Jordan would come with the Bulls to have so many uh, Bulls fans come down? And did that ever get on your nerves, for lack of a better term, as a as a member of the Pacers organization? Absolutely. And um, I always took it as a failure of some kind on my part that we didn't do better. Uh, to have the whole place sold out all the time. But, yeah, it used to irk me a little bit. Donnie Walsh's tenure as general you know, manager but, of the Pacers. But we needed is... the money, too. So, you know. <laughs> uh, Donnie Walsh's tenure as uh, general manager of the Pacers resulted in uh, the Pacers making the playoffs 17 times, the Eastern Conference Finals six times, the NBA Finals once and were Central Division champions four times. And for those of us who are old enough both to remember the ABA glory days, barely in my case, but certainly those years of futility in the late 70s through the through the mid to late 80s, uh, Donnie Walsh's arrival, along, of course, with Larry Brown and the terrific uh, collection of talent they assembled together, really led to a renaissance of pro basketball here in Indianapolis. We thank you very much for that. Uh, but I want to ask you one more question before we end with the five questions we ask of everyone on the show. You have, this was just brought to my attention, you have, of course, over your uh, career and lifetime, met and interacted with famous celebrities, of course, and athletes, basketball players, you name it. But you recently were in the Indianapolis Star because of your connection 
to a brand new sort of different type of celebrity. Uh, do you know to whom I'm referring? And can you talk to us a little bit th- about that? Well, he's on TV next to the president almost every day. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, yeah, I got a phone call from the Wall Street Journal and the guy um, called me up and I thought he was going to talk to me about pro basketball. And I said, well, I'm not a spokesman for our team today, so I don't. He said, no, I don't want to talk to you about our team today, your team today. I want to talk to you about high school. And I said, oh, high school? <laughs> now, you know, I would just tell you this. I was a senior in high school 63 years ago. So he picks out a, um, a team. He said, you, you played against Regis High School in, in um, New York. And I went, yeah, they're a Jesuit school. We're a Jesuit school. We usually played them. And then he said to me, well, did you know that Dr. Fauci uh, played on that team? And now I'm trying to remember playing Regis, which I couldn't remember at all for whatever reason, because I can remember <laughs> some, of the, some of the teams. And I could not remember Dr. Fauci. I'm, I'm thinking of his face today trying to think, I don't remember a guy that looked like that, but he's, you know, he's as old as I am. So why would, why would he look like that? Uh, so then I, 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 I cannot, I couldn't remember anything about it. And, and then he said at the end of it, he said, and they beat you. That I definitely didn't remember. So now I'm running around, you know, picking up iPads and all that stuff, trying to look up to see if I can find that game which I doubt I could ever find. Um, but I accepted it. He told me we lost and, and that Dr. Fauci, I have no idea how I played, but I remember after, after he said that, I went, they beat us. And then I thought to myself, you must've been bad in that game. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I couldn't imagine that that could have happened. Um, but in any case, uh, I have a lot of admiration for the doctor today. You know, I can't remember him from back then, but today I, I have a lot of it. Uh, in fact, I've looked it up, and he played with a guy that uh, played high school with me. I've been trying to reach the guy to say, hey, tell me about this game. <laughs> well, I'm pretty sure we could do an entire podcast on the six degrees of Donnie Walsh and the people you've coached, played with, interacted, helped. Uh, you've definitely made your mark, left your mark uh, over your lifetime. Uh, this connection to Fauci is so incredible. I just had to bring it up. I appreciate you addressing yeah, no, it. I, you know, I, I, it, it kind of shocked me. And But then, you know, none of us that are, you know, in professional athletics, and particularly those of us who have played at some level, the minute you say something, so and so beat you. It's like a challenge, <laughs> you know. It, it <laughs> right through me for a minute, and then I realized. I said, "Well, I'm glad he's doing what he's doing now. Where I'm sitting home watching him do it, you know, and it looks like it's working. So he must have something going for him." You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana. Garmond Construction, the Crown Plaza Hotel and Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the law firm of Bose, McKinney and Evans, 
and the Bose Public Affairs Group, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Donnie, we close the podcast with the same five questions to everyone. And if you're ready, I will go ahead. Okay. What was your first job? My first job. Boy, that's taking me back. I was a wire lapper, which was a construction job. That was one of my first jobs. And then I also worked in the New York. Um, it, it was a um, utility company in New York that basically set up the Great Lakes and brought le- electricity from the Great Lakes to New York. But it was a legal part of that. Really? Yeah. Well, that's certainly a def- that's definitely a unique answer for your first job. Uh, yeah. What was your... What was your first concert? My first concert? It had to be Elvis Presley. (laughs) (laughs) I think it was. I think he was the first one. I I went with our team to uh, Vegas, and he was performing there, and Frank got us tickets, and we all went and saw Elvis sing. It was was something else, because that was when he was really good. If you could recommend any book for someone to read, which book would you suggest? Uh, well, I, I have a lot of books, but Seven Story Mountain by Thomas Merton. The Catholic uh, philosopher? Yes. At number four, if you could witness any event in history... Which event would you choose? Be there as it happens. Uh, probably would be a heavyweight fight and probably would involve Muhammad Ali. The first Ali Frazier fight, perhaps? Yeah, I would love to go into that. Last question. If you could have dinner with anyone in the world living today, two hours off the record, whom would you choose? Well, you said living because I had some others, but um, living today, I have a lot of them that I'd love to have dinner with, but I don't know. I, I really can't pick somebody out now. I would have said John Kennedy in my younger years, but. A very popular answer has been uh, Larry Bird, but I'm sure you've already done that. Yeah, I've done that. So, and I, <laughs> I would have picked him out years ago. I would have. <laughs> Donnie Walsh has been our guest on the Leaders and Legends podcast. We are very, very grateful for your time. Uh, we appreciate all the stories, and not only that, the impact that you and your family have had on not only the city of Indianapolis, the state of Indiana but also the impact you've had on our culture and our love of basketball. Thank you so much, sir, for coming on. Well, thank you. I enjoyed it, Robert, and I I enjoyed it very much. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at 
veteranstrategies.com. Mm-hmm.